Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Liberty Talk FM. Welcome to Medicine on Call, where it's all about living in the solutions. Today I have an important guest on, someone I'm really excited to speak with, because I think she is in a position that of being knowledgeable and, and an, an ability to help people uh, navigate their, their finances. That's something that we all need help with, and I'm not sure that we all are financially literate. And every time we turn on the TV, there seems to be something new about the financial markets, and it's sometimes it seems like it's working, other times it's chaos. But I think the average American, whether they're a millennial, whether they're finished with school, whether they're in retirement, financial health is one of the most important things. And I think it's the underpinning, frankly, of health in general. If you're worried about your finances, it makes you anxious, it makes you depressed, Quite frankly, I think it can make you don't know how to handle it. So I want to thank Miss um, Christine Lane um, and, and thank her for coming on today, owner and the founder of Mind Over Money Consulting. And I just want to give you a chance to expound about how you came to this. What made you get started and, and open up your business? Well, sure, um, and thank you for having me. I'd love, love to tell the story. So uh, I am the founder of Mind Over Money. Uh, that is my independent consulting firm, and my job is to help put people in charge of their finances, whether that's helping them get out of debt, build savings, buy a home, or, or make sure they're on track for retirement. And I had kind of a circuitous path, actually, to doing this. I call my company Mind Over Money. Because I believe it's not just about the numbers. Um, in addition to being an accredited financial counselor, I also have a master's degree in psychology, so I really take a behavioral approach to this process. Um, and it starts back kind of in second grade. I was lucky enough to have parents who were very good at teaching us to be financially literate. I remember getting my first savings account in second grade and getting a little passbook and my dad explaining the concept of interest to me, which I thought was just the most exciting thing. I just put money in here and they give me more. Um, so that was kind of the spark. But I went in a very different direction when I started my professional life. Like I said, I got a master's degree in psychology, uh, which, by the way, also gave me big student loans, which is a whole other issue. Mm-hmm. Um, was was lucky enough to come out into the first tech boom where even people with master's degrees in psychology could get jobs in tech. Um and my job was to develop web-based training material to actually design the content in such a way that it fits with the way adult learners actually learn and applying those psychological principles to design that material. And so that was sort of my first job. Over time, I moved into project management roles where I was managing budgets and eventually into a director role where I was managing the profit and loss statement. turns out I loved budgets. But it took me a while to get to that point. I, I made some mistakes along the way in my professional career. First, I had these pretty big loans from going to graduate school. And then, like I said, lucky enough to get a good job out of graduate school. So I immediately decided it's time to no longer have roommates, to live on my own in a very trendy part of town, and to buy a new car. And I have all these loans. And at 29, I was kind of a mess. Um, And then at 30, I decided to really build on the education my parents had already given me 
learn as much as I could about personal finance, get a plan together so that by 33, I was out of debt, I had some savings, I was working on my 401k, all that good stuff. And, I, you know, I'm going through my career, and then I'm, I'm you know, older than I care to admit, but talking to one of, <laughs> you're talking with a group of people at my company about our 401k and getting the match, and one of our my colleagues, who was 29, coincidentally, said, oh, you know, I don't put away enough to get the match because, you know, I, I can't afford to do that. And at this point, I'm the director. I know what everybody makes. And I'm very smugly thinking, oh, come on. I know what you make. You can afford to eat and put money in the 401k. But she said, oh, I have student loans. And and I thought, what am I being smug about? I was in the exact same place when <laughs> I was 29. I had almost nothing in a 401k. Um and so I kind of thought about it, and I went to her, and I said, you know, I was where you are at 29, and I'm in a good place now, and if you want help, I'll help you. And to my surprise, she said, yes, I want help. Um, and so we sat down together and went over her finances, and I helped her build a plan, and I taught her some of the basics of financial literacy that she didn't understand, and the relief that came over her, mm-hmm. the level of anxiety. And then you know, she got herself out of credit card debt, working on the student loans, and I thought, this is so much fun. I want to do this as a second career. And a couple of years later, it was a good time to make the transition. And so I became an accredited financial counselor, and I've been doing that ever since. Wow. Just imagine how many lives you've uh, changed. Because that, that, that dread of owing somebody, of getting a call mm-hmm. or getting a letter, it's just like waiting for a shoe to drop and to actually have a strategy. And I think that's what most people probably don't have, do they? I mean, the ability to... Very true. Yeah. Well, how do you... I mean, as a psychology major, how do you turn that, you know, and usually it's the, I'm going to get to this, it's going to be later, but I'm going to get to it at some point. How do you make that mindset different so you can jump in with and be fearless? Because I think that's part of it, isn't it? Is it fear? Oh, it is such a big part of it. Uh, that, that first person, who I will call Bonnie, um, because that's her name and she doesn't mind if I talk about her. <laughs> Uh, you know, she had no idea how much she even owed because she was afraid to look. She was actually had a positive net worth. She was totally in the black um, mm-hmm. with what she had already actually put in her 401k, but she was so afraid to look. So having another person actually look for you, really, first of all, just having somebody who's going to say, okay, give me all of your information. Let's see what all your debts are. Let's see what all your savings are. And then I go off and I put it all together. Because even though the math is not super complicated, I say this as somebody who failed calculus twice, um, you know, the math is, we've learned that all by fifth or sixth grade. Mm-hmm. The fear that goes with it, I sometimes say it's the difference between a word problem in math where you're trying to figure out what, what the train's going to get to Cleveland on time versus just a simple numbers problem. To them, it's a word problem. If the answers that come out are, are scary, they don't want to look. For mm-hmm. me, it's a math problem. I can just run the math. And then, then we can turn it into a word problem where we figure it out. Um, so having me as accountability, and one of the things I hear over and over, it's interesting that you talk about that dread, because what I hear over and over from people is that they, what they get from this process, yes, they get out of debt, yes, they build savings, but what they really get is peace of mind, mm-hmm. and yes, they think I'm smart and I help them put good plans, but what I hear over and over again is that I'm not judgmental. That they need somebody who's non-judgmental, who isn't going to shame them for where they are, but can just help them get to where they want to be. That that psychological safety when working with money, when when trying to think through your money, is so important. I would agree, and and that's why 
I, I don't think they'd get that from their partner, their spouse, their mother or their father. And it's like a safe space to to a degree, you know, where you have somebody who doesn't have a dog in the hunt. They just want to help you. And they want exactly. to give you all sorts of different uh, pathways to get there. And, you know, that to me is freeing. That's actually liberating, I would say. It is. It is. And I've had people tell me, you know, when I've gotten to know a little more of their stories. I had one client in particular um, who was like, you know, I can tell your parents are probably pretty good at this. Some people come to me because their parents have never taught them because their parents don't know. Mm-hmm. But I said, I can tell. I bet your parents know what they're doing. And she said, you know what? I just, I don't want to invite them into this part of my life at this age. I want to do it on my own. They would be thrilled to help me, and I know they could, mm-hmm. you know, help teach me this stuff. But then they're going to want to know about it all the time, and I don't necessarily <laughs> want to tell them about it all the time. It's like going to your doctor, basically, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes. On that note, let's take our first break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. You're listening to Medicine on Call, where healthcare, business, and current events connect. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're having a really important conversation with Ms. Christine Lane. She's the founder of Mind Over Money Consulting. And if people go to her website, uh, I think it's mindovermoney.com or mindovermoneysite.com. It's actually mindovermoneysite.com. Great. And I'm going on there now, and it's really it's just as comforting as talking to you right now because it's it just gives you just the facts and it's it's warm it's well written and you just want to use your services so that you can actually start making a difference now you talked about we talked about before the break fear what makes somebody Mm -hmm. a, a good manager of their money what's the trait that you find that underpins people who have a handle on it you know, it's very interesting, and as a psychologist, somebody with a psychological bent, one of the things that makes it so difficult is money in our world. Well, let me ask you this question. If I asked you to take a picture of money, what would you take a picture of? Probably money. <laughs> I'm a little literal on that and what one. Is that? Like what? When you say money, what, what literally do you mean? I mean the actual currency. Okay, so you would take a picture of some cash. Mm-hmm. So this is what's interesting. Only about 10 or 11% of what is considered money in the U.S. is is actually physically cash. Mm. 90% of it is in computers. 90% of our money does not exist physically anywhere. And what that means is money has become a completely abstract concept in our world today. And our brains did not evolve to deal with abstract concepts like that when we also have competing desires of things like I would like to spend my money and get a concrete thing. Mm -hmm. So it is really challenging. It is really challenging because people that are good at it tend to have a few things. Good at it without any additional help. Likely they've had parents that taught them the basics of financial literacy. 
They also really like to keep things organized. Some people are naturally organized. They love putting together charts and tables and, you know, tracking their money. Um, and then on top of that, there's another thing where it is they don't necessarily get a big jolt of happiness out of spending money, but they get a jolt out of saving the money. Um, that's a, that's a reward system, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the limbic system, which is the part of the brain that evolved first, that deals with the concrete, deals with emotions and desires, and to whom rewards are reinforcing. The prefrontal cortex, which is evolved later, is uh, more complex and often at odds with our limbic system because it does the future planning and our limbic system wants things right now. <laughs> that can deal with the abstract that is money, but it is fighting a losing battle in a world where money is so abstract and our desires are immediate and the things we can buy are concrete and the things we spend are completely abstract. Um, so that said, people that, so, so certain people are rewarded by literally the act of saving. Some people are emotionally rewarded by spending. And I say it that way very deliberately because I want to remove the shame that comes from people who like to spend. If your natural reward system isn't set up that way, you have a more of an uphill battle to save money and to manage your money well than the person that occurs less frequently, of which I will admit that I'm actually one, um, who sees saving money as winning points in a video game. Some of us feel that way. Most of us do not. <laughs> and so our limbic systems are rewarded when we save more so than when we spend. I'm not a super naturally organized person. For me, it's the reward system, but other people that I know who do very well are people that enjoy being organized, focusing on the details, and tracking things. Because that tracking takes the abstract world and makes it concrete. So people that, that, that like to do that, who can make money concrete, and people that just sort of get a, get a thrill out of saving. Mm -hmm. um, but like I said, they're a minority. So the rest of the world is fighting against their natural inclinations to manage money in this world. Wow. Uh, that seems, a, I think I'm one of those people. <laughs> well, and the good news is, with help, they can, we, you can put systems and processes and structure in place that turns them into people that work, that, that, that behave very similarly to the people who are naturally have the right uh, brain setup. Do you find that there are any specific professions that are more likely to be one limbic versus uh, frontal cortex? Like, um, you know, certainly any process that involves dealing a lot with abstraction, although I will say, uh, being somebody who has a scientific background, if I make any generalizations about this based on what I have witnessed in my practice, there is no statistical validity to it. I'm just <laughs> going to be making generalizations on too few cases. Um, I will say that engineers tend to be good with numbers, although I've got engineers in my practice. Um so, yeah, I want to avoid making a generalization about that because I'm probably wrong. I'm probably not statistically valid. Gotcha. And in terms of um, your clients, are they all over the country or in any specific? All over the country. Okay. All over the country. I will say that I'm, uh, I'm in the Washington, D.C. area. So because of word of mouth and because my first clients were people I knew, um, you know, there tends to be a concentration here, but I definitely work with people West Coast, middle of the country, um, you know, all over the place because you know, I work with people by phone and through shared documents online. You know, that's the one good thing about uh, the abstract world of today and the information age is it makes it much easier to work with people all over the place. 
Well, let's talk. I mean, we're going to take a break in about four minutes, but I wanted to start mm-hmm. the conversation about the the foundation, and that is student loans. I think most professionals, pretty much everybody these days, has some sort of student loan out there. And we, mm-hmm. the conversation has been about forgiving them and free tuition, but that's not where we are right now. We're, we have to talk about what is. How mm-hmm. do you? What do you do with folks who are overextended because of student loans? What is your recommendation of how they can help themselves? So that's, of course, something that I see so much in my practice. Student lo- and I, if I had a magic wand and I were in charge of policy, I have all kinds of opinions on changing it, but I have neither of those things. So what I do with my clients that I'm working with is, first, we do check out the forgiveness programs that are already in place. Um, they're really just starting to come to fruition for, for some people but mostly we just, we need to deal with it as a debt. We need to, you know, what I hear a lot from people is we're all tagged to certain norms as to what a, what a professional middle class lifestyle should look like. And what I have to do is detach them from those norms and say, we're a generation with really big loans. And we're tagging our norms to something that a whole lot of us can't really afford. And you don't know it because your friends aren't talking to you about it, but I can tell you, a lot of your friends are dealing with this too. And so we need to recalibrate. You may be 26 and feel like, or 30 and feel like it's time to live without roommates. I live in a high cost of living area. I, you know, roommates are a great way to bring your costs down. Um, I know you feel like you should be able to afford this type of car or to go out to eat this often. But again, we have to look at the reality of the math. Sometimes I tell people, it's my job to show you the math. It's your job to believe it. Um, and to not try to tag, try to peg your lifestyle to a set of norms that doesn't, just doesn't apply or shouldn't apply if you want to have financial security. And what I find is once I can get people to make that shift and once they start working to financial security, it becomes its own reward. We're back to the Olympic system of rewards mm-hmm. and they are much more willing to do what they need to do to prioritize those loans, to get them paid off, um, and for the ones where it's really overwhelming, and I have those people with the $200,000 loans who are not doctors or lawyers. Um, and so, you know, they, they don't have the really high salaries. Sometimes we just have to wait those out for the 20 years, what's called the um, you know, IBR, Income Based Repayment Plan. And, um, you know, you pay them for 20 to 25 years, and then eventually they go away. It's, it's, a, it's a large chunk of your income. Mm-hmm. You know, it matters. I'm not pretending it doesn't. It's just... We got to deal with the math as math. And student loans. I mean, do you? If you had a magic wand, how would you? Mm-hmm. What would you want to do to try to get us out of this? Would it be loan forgiveness, a mass loan forgiveness, or what? So, I would love again for magic wand. We're operating for people that have not yet gone to school. I would I, putting on my trainer hat. There are a whole lot of ways to get the transfer of information that college is giving people a lot lower price. We do not need to go away to four-year institutions with gorgeous buildings. And I say that from the privilege of knowing I did get to do that, and it was fun. Mm-hmm. I think we need to recalibrate the norms for middle class on how we get that second level of education. Mm-hmm. I'd love to see more uses of online training, community college, but we're all just pegged to this idea that middle class kids go away to college at a four-year institution. Again, that's magic wand stuff. For the people in real life, I am a big fan of the loan forgiveness programs, particularly when they t- 
tied to professions where we need more people, good people in those roles, and where the student loans, like, you know, teachers, nurses that are going to work in rural areas, um, you know, where, where we need people to work in those professions and where the cost of education can almost prohibit people from working in them. I think those are perfectly good programs. Mm-hmm. And certainly for the IVRs, the income-based repayment plans, where you're paying a portion of your income that you can actually afford, and you're paying it for 20 to 25 years, depending on whether or not it was undergrad or grad school loans, and then it gets forgiven. Um, that is certainly helpful. Obviously, there are much broader policy issues at, in play there, um, which I'm you know, not expert in. Um, but for my clients... That, that's helpful. But I'm, I'm also a big believer that, you know, you've got this education and it's time to pay for it. People resent the heck out of their student loans. It's interesting. <laughs> Nobody resents their mortgage as much as they resent their student loans. I resented mine too. Like crazy I resented them. Um, and it's just, you know, you got an education and now you're paying it back. I guess you're right on that one. I mean, it's sometimes seems though that I mean, if we're going to get a little bit on the soapbox, they, they're kind of gouging people on the cost of education. It's almost like health care, you, you know? And you know whose fault that is? No. It's our fault. Okay. The reason it's our fault, I say this because um, I have a lot of friends who are sending kids to college right now. Um, I've done a lot of taking continuing education credits around this. Colleges want prestige. Um, prestige comes in the form of the people with the highest GPAs and the highest SAT scores in their freshman classes. 17- and 18-year-olds are making these decisions. They make those decisions based on beautiful college campuses um, and prestige, if the schools have prestige. And so to attract the most desirable class, they need to spend a lot of money on the kinds of things that impress 17- and 18-year-olds. Mm-hmm. We then ask 17- and 18-year-olds to sign contracts that have wide-ranging implications on their lives, um, and, and you know, parents don't dissuade them because we're all so bought into this. So it is absolutely, I absolutely believe that the education, the transfer of knowledge can be done so much less expensively. Colleges are doing it in one continuing education course that I took uh, that with a group that specialized in, in learning how to pay for colleges that have literally asked the question, why are you charging so much? And the answer was literally because we can. <laughs> Consumers need to become far more price sensitive when it comes to their education. And I think we're getting there. I yeah. think there's a lot that's been talked about on this. Um, I was not at all. When I was going to school, it was like all educational loans are good. Um, I would love to see consumers be, become more price sensitive, and then colleges would have to compete on price, which right now they don't have to do at all. On that note, let's take a break and, and think about that. You're listening to Medicine on Call. You can catch the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and all other social media platforms. Subscribe and share it with your friends. What's up, everybody? Bubba here. It's finally here. The long-awaited Bubba Report, bringing you news from all the trading floors across the globe. We've got Scott Chalady, the cow guy, as seen on CNBC, Fox, and Bloomberg. We've got Keith Bliss, CNBC, Fox, and a floor trader at the New York Stock Exchange. We've got the Badger, who writes the hot topics in the political news. We've got myself putting together my own unique indexes that will help you give you a better idea of what's going on in the market. All you need to do to get a hold of the Bubba Report is go to the Bubba Show.org and sign up for the newsletter, or you can email me direct 
at Bubba at the Bubba Show.org. We want you to have this report because we've got over 150 years of experience talking about markets, getting ready for the trading, and puts you in the best position to have successful. So email me at Bubba at the Bubba Show.org to get a copy of your report or go right to the website, the Bubba Show.org. Make sure you get it. It's a must-have for every investor and trader. The Bubba Report. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're speaking with Miss uh, Christine Lane, and that was a real, you know, eye-opening statement. And we all have to take responsibility for ourselves, and that goes in many parts of our our um, our, our country and and healthcare. And you know, people think of education as a right. You know, just like they're trying to make healthcare a right, and it really is. As a consumer, it's it's a it's a commodity almost that you have to buy it. You have to think about what you're what you're purchasing, whether that's an insurance plan, whether that's tuition for your child, and what school they're going to go to. I mean, from a gross perspective, how do you, what do you what do people need as a foundation for their financial health? How much money do you think they should be saving, and at what age should they? I mean, obviously you should start when you're a baby, most likely, but. Reality, you know, as you're an adult, when sh when should you start trying to save? Well, okay, so that's that's obviously a pretty pretty broad question. It and is. I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. <laughs> um, I will say there's there are some steps to getting yourself financially secure. And first of all, I just want to say for people that have student loans, and I have them too, um, you know, we're all making these decisions at young ages, and there are not a whole lot of super savvy 17 and 18 year olds when it comes to doing this. So I completely get how people get in the positions they're in. Um, so the first step is you want to save, let's put it this way, save as much as you can, as early as you can, for as long as you can. That's a very flip answer. But what I'm working with people, what I really try to do is balance. Balance the, the um, needs of financial safety with current enjoyment of life. And how much current enjoyment of life you can have against your savings really depends how much debt you already have. Mm. So, but the steps of sort of getting things together is start saving as soon as you can. Everybody can, everybody with a with a regular income can save fifty dollars a month. If, that, if people if people are really tight, they've got big student loans. That's where I start them. Just save fifty dollars a month in a savings account. More if you can. Ten percent is great. If you can be saving ten percent of your income until you have an emergency fund of three to six months' worth of expenses um, while putting at least 10% into a 401K, that's ideal. A lot of my clients cannot start there because they have debt, and paying down debt is a very high priority because, of course, you're being charged interest on that debt. So I usually say start with it. If you're, if you're dealing with debt, start with a small amount in a savings account. Make paying off the debt a priority. If you're in a role where you've got a 401k with a match for retirement, absolutely get that match even before you pay down your debt because it's free money. Then focus on paying down your debt as quickly as you can. Um, what I do when I work with my clients, what I usually do is, again, it's very, very abstract. So I show them in black and white, if you put this much towards your debt, this is how long you'll get out of debt in a year. If you want to have more spending money now, you can do that. It will take you three years to get out of debt. 
how much is it worth to you? And we kind of work back and forth until we hit a balance that works for them. Mm-hmm. If I see them doing something dangerous, so for example, I had clients, they knew they were overspending, they wanted to trim around the edges, but there was no way. They already had a second mortgage on their house, they had credit card debt, and I said, you cannot trim around the edges. If you do, you will go bankrupt. Not next week and not next year, but look at a five-year projection. And you will lose your house. You will lose your children's house. So with every financial choice you make, and I, and I showed them, like, here are the numbers. They said, well, what if we just cut this much? I said, okay, now you go bankrupt in seven years. What if we cut this much? I said, okay, now you get out of debt. There's a tipping point where you never get out of it and where you start moving in the right direction. So I always want people to be in the tipping point where they're moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm. But it really is a balancing act. Um, so it, it's hard to say because it is such a personal decision. But if you can start, you know, 10% is awesome. $50, if you can't do 10%, get your 401k match and pay off your debts. That's what I would say. Now, that's if you – what if you're self-employed and, you, I mean, you don't have the, the company to help match – is there a strategy for someone like that? Sure, absolutely. There are tax advantage accounts that are specific for people that are self-employed. There's the simple, I think there's one called the SEP, if I'm getting that right. There are even now 401ks that you can set up for your own company, although they're a bit more complex. But if you want to keep it really simple, a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA, which you set up outside of your company, these are also tax-advantaged accounts. You either don't have to pay taxes when you're putting the money in, or in the case of Roth, you don't have to pay taxes when you're taking the money out. Um, they're really great. And so definitely for self-employed people, I recommend at a minimum looking into them and getting those things start, started. And actually, I have a client right now who is self-employed. And because it isn't, you, know, you don't sit down with your HR person and have them decide to sign you up for the 401K, it gets pushed back. Mm-hmm. So she's been working at a profitable, uh, a profitable practice for a while and has just never set one up. And I said, look, we're going to do this while you're working with me because as soon as you stop working with me, you're going to forget about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so do it while somebody – so if anybody's listening and you run your own business and you don't have a, an IRA set up, go set it up tomorrow. Do you have to be a certain age to before you can actually take it out without being penalized? So it depends on the particular uh, type of IRA. For traditional IRAs and for 401ks, 59 and a half is the age that you need to be before you can take it out without being penalized. For a Roth IRA, and that is the type of IRA where you put in money after it's been taxed, Mm -hmm. you can take out the money that you put in earlier than that without paying a penalty. The caveat is you can't take out any growth. So say you put in... $10,000 $10,000 and you had 20% appreciation, so now you have $12,000 in there. You want to buy a house, you need a down payment. You can take out the 10000 that you put in, not the additional 2000 that the investments earned. I see. And just so I'm clear, when you, if you take out, if you wait till you're 59, I guess on the, on the part that was never taxed, do you have to pay your tax after, you, you know, even your, your right age to take it out, do you have to pay taxes on that? Yes, you absolutely do. The government okay. will get their taxes. No matter but what. But it's still hugely advantaged because you will pay taxes on what you withdraw, when you withdraw it, as if it were ordinary income. So mm-hmm. as if this were part of your salary, you would pay those types of taxes. Meanwhile, 
you've gotten all the growth from not paying it, you know, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And you don't, that growth doesn't go away. So it is, it is hugely advantageous. So basically you're only paying taxes on what you withdraw and the rest can just sit there. The rest can just sit there and keep growing. Now, not to get too technical because, like I said, my approach really is all about the behavioral types of things. But at 70, I think it's age 70, um, there is something called with, with required minimum withdrawals. So they want you to start taking it out at some point. Okay. Got you. Now, from an, in terms of parents and children, you know, if you mm-hmm. do have children that are going to go to college or whatever, how do you recommend that they set, start setting up for their child's future? So first, I always tell my clients who are parents, you can't give your children what you do not have. I have seen parents with credit card debt running at 15% interest who are prioritizing putting money in their children's 529 account over paying off these very high interest credit cards. Um, Ultimately, you're going to be able to support your children with what you have. So 529s are good tax advantage accounts, good thing to start, but I really want to make sure that people have their own financial foundation in place before they worry too much about their kids, which is, for, for the record, really difficult. It's mm-hmm. not, not the way parents think, right? They mm-hmm. want to do everything good for their kids. So sometimes I tell people, like my uh, clients who are parents that have big debt, particularly that, that one couple that I talked about that were on the tipping point, I said, look, I know you're not going to stop putting money in your kids' 529 account. You should, but I know you're not, So just because you're going to feel bad about that as a parent. So just put in $50 a month, and let's deal with the rest of this stuff first. It sounds like, a, I mean, kind of a, a compromise, but kind of everybody's happy and they're moving forward. And yeah. I see the pattern I'm here. Really, Go ahead. Yeah. I can say I really do try to, to not always do what's mathematically the best if there's a psychological, a really compelling psychological element towards doing something that's going to keep you motivated and keep, I, keep you moving forward. Because I'd much rather you follow a slightly mathematically imperfect plan mm-hmm. than give up on a mathematically perfect plan. Makes sense. Actually, actually, makes sense a lot. And then once you start the process, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy almost. You see the change. You see the the movement towards, you know, peace. And I guess it just feeds on itself, right? It's just getting started, right? It absolutely right? does. It's amazing how quickly some people can turn this around once they show it to them in black and white. Some people need me to plot all of my psychological tricks, and we do a lot of exercises to help build up the skills of the prefrontal cortex and create rewards in the limbic system. But some people just need it to be concrete. I've had people who are in three sessions have a completely turned around attitude. They're like, we love this. We're having so much fun. We're, my husband and wife competing with each other to see who can save more every month. And they said, we feel so much better now than we were spending on all this fun stuff. Mm-hmm. And it just, it's absolutely, it absolutely builds on itself. And so very quickly. That sounds awesome. Let's take our our next break where you're listening to Medicine on Call. From treatment of sinusitis with balloon dilation to minimally invasive office procedures to correct snoring, Peachtree ENT Center offers state-of-the-art care. We also specialize in price transparency. You'll know the cost of our ENT services before they're rendered, whether you have a high deductible plan or no insurance at all. 
Make an appointment today to find out why Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Call 404-591-9100 or visit us at peachtreeentcenter.com. This is Dr. George from Medicine on Call. Each week I speak about our healthcare system and the problems with it. One of the main problems is the doctor-patient relationship. I've found that patients really crave time, the time to ask their doctor questions, and physicians crave the time to answer those questions in a thorough manner. Towards that end, Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center is pleased to announce a new video telemedicine service. We now offer consultation for second opinions and for people who'd like to learn more and ask questions about how to navigate the healthcare system in a cost-effective and efficient manner. Go to peachtreeentcenter.video-visits.com to learn more. If you've tried taking over-the-counter medications but still have problems with nasal congestion, recurrent sinus infections, sinus headaches, or a dry mouth when you wake up in the morning, why not fix the problem? From natural integrative treatment to minimally invasive surgery, Peachtree ENT Center will work with you to find the solution that works best for you. Call 404-591-9100 today to make an appointment or visit us at peachtreeentcenter.com because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. You can catch the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Subscribe and share it with your friends. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're speaking with Ms. Christine Lane, the owner and the founder of Mind Over Money Consulting. And people should go to the website, excuse me, mindovermoneysite.com. And you also have a Facebook page too, don't you? Yes, yes, I do. It's um, my, I should know this off the top of my head. It's Christine Lane, Mind Over Money, or it's Mind Over Money, Christine Lane. Um, I would actually have to look that up real quick to see exactly what the, uh, exactly how Facebook does that. I forget if they put my name first. Okay, here we are. Um, yes, it's Christine Lane, Mind Over Money. So if you go to Facebook, Christine Lane, Mind Over Money. Awesome. Now, because this is a show that talks about healthcare, I'm curious to know what's on the front line when people have medical debt. And, you know, there's been, I read an article, which is really pretty shocking. One of the universities in your neck of the woods um, one of the hospitals was suing somebody for $13 of debt. I mean, this is the level that it's gotten to. I can't even imagine having that, people come after me for something that small. You know, it's, it's very interesting because medical debt gets all kinds of press, mm-hmm. right? Like it's this big, fearsome thing. And certainly protracted illness can have a huge impact on your financial health and and, as, and vice versa as you mentioned you know problems with your financial health financial world can impact your your health but the truth about medical bills and you're a doctor so you may, you may correct me on some of this mm. um, if you've got a lot of debt and you're having a hard time making ends meet medical bills are actually some of the easier bills to deal with and and there's a couple reasons for that one is if you have, say you're having a hard time making ends meet um, and you have a mortgage or you have a car payment. Those are both what are called secured loans, meaning that your lender has recourse if you don't pay to foreclose on your house or take your car. 
Um, credit cards are unsecured loans, but you've got a contract with the credit card company that they will charge you interest. Usually that interest is variable. They can raise it over time, and they can charge you fees if you don't pay on time. And they report to the credit agencies very quickly. Mm-hmm. Medical bills are not secured loans. And for the most part, unless you sign a contract with your medical provider that says they can charge you interest, they can't charge you interest. And so, and they also tend not to be super quick to report to the, um, the credit bureaus, impact your credit score. And now a new regulation has been passed that no medical um, debt will show up in your credit score until it's six months old. The reason for that has to do with insurance billing errors and trying to work that stuff out. Mm-hmm. They don't want something that's an insurance error to come up on your, you know, come up on your credit score. Um, so if you're having trouble making ends meet, medical debt is some of the lowest priority debt to pay. Now, I'm a big believer that everybody should pay their debt. <laughs> um, but if you're trying to keep a roof over your head and you're trying to keep your car so you can go to work, you can put off those medical debts more easily. The recourse that they have is, of course, to sue. Um, and for the most part, Medical debt, is they're probably not going to sue. What they're probably going to do is turn it over to a collection agency who will then harass you for the money, and they will report it to the credit agencies. Um, but you can also negotiate, settle the debts, uh, you know, for, lo- for less than you owe. You have a lot of options with medical debt. And for some reason that, because it's not as scary as hearing medical debt is bankrupting people, which mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it isn't. Um, that doesn't get reported as often, and I think it's really important for people to know because people do tend to want to prioritize paying these off, even if it means getting behind on other things that are more important for helping them dig out of the hole that they're currently in. So if you were to prioritize of things, what what would be the most important thing to try to get a handle and pay off first? So we've already said medical debt is kind of on the lower rung. What's the first thing that you should hit? And I guess I'm saying if you literally can't make all your payments, if you right. are literally cannot pay everything, then put off medical debt. When it comes to paying, uh, you've got a variety of different types of debt. There's two main methods. Uh, your listeners may have heard of the snowball method, Paranaut, um, that was sort of put out there by Dave Ramsey, which is where you pay your smallest, say, say it's credit card debt mm-hmm. and some student loan debt. You pay the, small, the one with the smallest balance first so that you pay it off quickly. Um, this is actually where it's one of those things that is mathematically imperfect but psychologically motivating because mathematically, the best thing to do would always be to pay off your debt with the highest interest rate first. Um, so usually that's probably a credit card debt if you have credit cards. Student loans are usually a little bit lower on the scale. When I'm working with my clients, and sometimes people call that the debt avalanche method, paying off the highest interest rate first. Mm-hmm. When I'm working with my clients, I run the numbers both ways. And I say, okay, I, I, again, I'm psychological, so I like the smallest credit card first because I like to see those wins come quickly. But I will run the numbers and see what the difference is. And if we're talking about a few hundred dollars extra that you're going to wind up paying on thousands of dollars versus debt, I'll say, let's go with the smallest credit card first. If it's going to make thousands of dollars a difference, then I go with, all right, let's pay the highest interest rate first. Um, so that's usually how I prioritize. And usually that will mean credit cards first, student loans second, um, usually cars third. Okay. And so you would recommend, I mean, as long as you're trying to pay things off, not have anything continue, like a, a car lease, basically, you would, ex- you would want someone to actually buy the car instead of continuing to pay 
and never oh, yes. kind of have an ending on it. Yes, I like endings for car payments. Um, I do not subscribe to the idea that you will always have a car payment. Cars last a long time. Um, I actually just bought my first new car in 12 years. My husband has a truck that's 20 years old, and I had a 12-year-old car. Um, and, you know, at this point, buying a car is not, not a financial hardship for me at all. Um, but, you know, cars last a long time. There's no point in turning them over really quickly. That's not good for your financial health. More importantly, the thing about leases, again, comes back to psychological with me, you will get used to always having a car. And you will always be willing to pay more when you're paying in monthly payments than if you're writing a check, mm-hmm. um, you know, a big down payment on a car. So I am a fan of getting a car, paying it off two to four years. Four is more reasonable for most people. Um, and then keeping it for another five or six and then turning it over after that, after you've taken all that money that you were paying to the car payment and socked it away in savings so that you could put a very nice down payment on your next car and then pay that one off even more quickly. Um, and, you know, that builds that, that, that foundation building over time. Now, is there any time that carrying debt is in your favor? Like if you're a business owner and you have a corporation, is there any 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 good thing about that? So without getting into too many loopholes for corporations, they, they're, they're working in a whole different space. Mm. There are certainly times when mathematically it makes sense to carry some debt. So an argument could be made that if you're buying a car and the dealer is offering 0% interest financing, that it would be better to keep the money that you would have otherwise used towards a larger down payment um, and keep it in the bank and earn interest on it or even, you know, have it in investments that are earning interest and then pay 0% on the car or even a 1% or a 2%. Again, I don't like that because I feel like you, like you're really good at this stuff. Like if you're great at saving and you know it's going in there, absolutely. I feel like it will give people opportunities to spend more and most likely they'll spend more money. Certainly if there's an asset that you need that is going to help your life The foundation, your financial foundation, you need a car to get to work, Mm -hmm. and you do not have enough money to buy, pay cash for a car. I have a family who's been really good about putting money in their retirement accounts. They have some credit card debt. They were thinking they have two kids to get through college, and they can't. They've saved money for college, but not enough to get all two kids, both kids through. There's going to be some periods where there just isn't enough. And I said, look, in your case, you can borrow from your 401k. You have to pay it back in five years, otherwise you have to pay the penalty. Mm-hmm. If it, in your case, it makes all the sense in the world to borrow from this and pay it back um, because this is a short-term thing. This is not long-term consumer debt. This is not you habitually overspending your income. It's a short-term thing, relatively speaking, and you know, put your kids on the right track. So, sure. I mean, I even, even student loans, I'm not opposed to them on principle. I just think we need to be really think through how much we're taking out versus what we're going to make um, and be thoughtful about them. That makes sense. And so what about the, the, the last section that I want to ask you about would be renting versus owning your home? Oh, that's a favorite question of people. I actually have a service where we help walk through what makes sense in terms of, you know, um, what will pay off over the long run. Of course, the American dream is for everybody to own a home. And for, for yeah, there are statistics out there that say people that own homes are hugely financially in a better place over the long run than people that don't. Of course, there's a flaw in that reasoning if you're thinking that it's 
you know, causative because people that could afford to buy homes were probably in a better shape to begin with than people that could never afford to buy a home. They, they weren't coming from the same place. But that all said, most people, if they can't afford to buy a home, will do better in the long run because buying a home is a forced savings plan. You're building equity slowly over time, not as quickly as people think it is. Mm. Um, but that said, if you are a very disciplined person, most people aren't. We've already established that, that most people, money is abstract. And you chose to live as a renter lifelong. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things you spend money on in a house that you never get back. If you have a house, you're going to care way more about the drapes, the color of the walls, the landscaping, your furniture. Whereas if you live in a rental space, it doesn't feel as personal. You don't spend as much money on that. Um, if you want to, If you want to be a renter, you can make that financially viable. As long as you do a really good job of saving the money you would have spent on extraneous things involved in your house. And it's also really location dependent. There are parts of the country where buying is a no-brainer. Depending on what rents are and what housing prices are, there are other parts of the country where that, where that equation is very different. Gotcha. Well, I mean, it's a very equivocal answer, I know, but it really, it really is mathematically depends on the numbers in your circumstance. No, actually, it was a great answer because there's not one size that fits all. You really have to, right. you know, be an individual on this. I mean, time yeah. goes so fast on these interviews. I really I learned a great deal. And I really enjoyed the time spent with you. Well, how can people reach you? Because I know people need to be calling you. Well, absolutely. My, as you mentioned, my site is called Mind Over Money Site. So that's Mind Over Money S I T E dot com. You can also find me on Facebook. But if anybody's interested in my services, and you know, like I said, I'm about, about helping people get out of debt. I'm about building savings, saving for gold, education, um, but really giving people peace of mind, taking them from chaos to control when it comes to their finances. So I do offer free consultations for anybody who's interested. You can find a link to my calendar on my website, or you could email me and say that you heard about me through Dr. George. I'll be happy to give you uh, a special deal, a slightly longer um, consultation. So, that, yeah, that's where people can find me. Um, and if you're in the D.C. area, I do a lot of free financial talks in the area, and you can usually see those uh, either on my website or on my Facebook page when I'm doing those. Well, Ms. Lane, thank you so much for coming on. I, I want to have you back on in the future because I'm sure with oh, all the things, oh, that'd be awesome. Because there's so many things financially that are just, it's just every day, it's, an, it's a new ball game. You know, they drop the interest rates. It really is. Wall Street's going nuts. And so I think it's, if you're financially literate, then you can be emotionally <laughs> stable. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. It, 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 I, I cannot tell you the difference in the peace of mind, having the basic knowledge and a, and a little bit of control goes towards, you know, just making your whole life calmer. Uh, on that note, there's nothing else to add. Thank you so much for joining me. I thank you for your time. And thank you, everybody, for listening to Medicine on Call. Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Liberty Talk FM.